Welcome back, everyone. Today, Nina and I are discussing the hit parade of 1966. Like in our previous episodes about 64 and 65, we'll go in chronological order, starting with the first murders of the year on April 24th. Although we've covered deaths of David Sidlowskis and Anthony Varanis in our episode about the boys of Winter Hill, we'll include more information about them and their murders today. We've also included some of the other slayings that happened in 66 in previous episodes, but as Laura mentioned, we'll provide details that we haven't previously. There were a total of 15 gangland slayings in the Boston area in Providence, Rhode Island between April and December that year. We will not be covering the disappearance of Billy Aggie today, but we are counting it as one of the murders. Some believe that Billy went into the witness protection program, but there isn't any corroborating evidence to back that up. However, there are statements from informants that he was killed. Billy's demise will be included in episode 40. Willie Maffeo's murder will be included in episode 45. As will the other two Rhode Island murders. There were no recorded gangland slayings between November 15, 1965 and April 24, 1966. Georgie McLaughlin was on death row, Spike O'Toole was locked up for harboring Georgie, and the other McLaughlin associates were either in prison on other charges or on the lam. Buddy McLean's crew was also laying low in the aftermath of his assassination, which we believe was carried out by Pro Lerner. You'll also recall that Tommy Ballou was arrested at Buddy's wake on a gun-carrying charge. He had been released after a Charlestown District Court dismissed the charges, but a week later, Ballou was indicted in Suffolk Superior Court on the same charge and eventually convicted. Effley Bailey appealed, but the conviction was upheld in June of 66. Joe Barboza had been arrested in November of 65 and was held on bail through the holidays. He was sentenced to six months in the House of Correction in the middle of January, but credited with time served and was back out on the street by late May. Jimmy Fleming and Johnny Moderano had also been arrested in November of 65. Jimmy had been on the lam and Johnny got picked up for harboring him. The two men were finally sentenced on March 9th of 66. Jimmy got four to six years for jumping bail. Johnny was sentenced to six months, but was credited with time served and was back out on the street later that month. With that for background, let's jump into the Varanis and Sidlowskis murders, both of which happened on the same day. On April 24th, David M. Sidlowskis, a 22-year-old with a minor criminal record, was found by a nurse outside of the Long Island Hospital in Quincy. His body was still warm. He had been shot in the chest and arm. A few days after Sidlowski's body was found, a 45 caliber pistol was found in parts in the Marymount section of Quincy, but was never connected to any crime. Anthony Varanis was pistol whipped and shot in the head with a 38 special while on his knees, according to the medical examiner. There was no wallet or ID on his body, only $22.38 in his pocket. Varanis was initially identified by the tattoos on his hands, love and hate. His body was found by a former marathon runner who was jogging through the Blue Hills on the Quincy side. Varanis was a boxer who fought against Joe Barboza, Rocco de Siglio, and Rico Sacramoni, but was forced to quit after acquiring brain surgery following his fight with Joe Devlin at the Boston Garden in May of 58. Varanis had a record dating back to when he was a juvie and had been incarcerated at the age of 12 at the Lyman Reform School. It was there that he was spotted by a boxing manager. When Varanis was released in 1956, he looked up the manager and began boxing, first as an amateur, then moving into the pros the following year. He racked up 25 wins, and as Laura mentioned, his career ended abruptly in May of 1958 with brain surgery to remove two blood clots. He wasn't even 20 years old. 
In June of 58, Varanis was quoted as saying, quote, boxing was my trade. I don't know what I'm going to do. What he ended up doing was return to a life of petty crime. Varanis was given three years probation for an assault and battery charge in 1959. In February of 1960, he was sentenced to two and a half to three years in Walpole for robbing a cab driver of $22. The following year, he was paroled. But he wasn't free for long and returned to prison, this time to Bridgewater for breaking and entering and assaulting the arresting officer. Then in 1963, he was sentenced to another two and a half to three years on an older B&E charge. After being granted parole later that same year, he landed back in prison in 64 before being paroled for the final time in 1965. Varanis later recounted to a Boston Globe journalist, I thought my life was over when I couldn't fight anymore. I was filled with self-pity. I started drinking and I got in trouble again. But he'd started turning his life around, had gotten a stable job in construction, and was talking about going back to school at nights. But that wasn't to be. The papers tried to say that the murders of Sidlowskis and Varanis weren't connected, but police reports and statements from people in attendance at the bar they were both in prior to being shot prove otherwise. The medical examiner noted that the murder of Varanis was, quote, a real professional job, end quote. Decades later, Johnny Moderano confessed to the Varanis hit. The story is that after Varanis tried to outdraw Johnny in a Dorchester after-hours joint, Moderano lost it and beat and shot Varanis. But Johnny told yet another story in his testimony at the 2013 Whitey Bulger trial. Apparently, Johnny Moderano's brother got in a beef with Varanis, and Varanis beat the crap out of him. Johnny couldn't bear the thought of someone humiliating his brother, and he set out on a mission to hunt Varanis down. With William Garraway in tow, Johnny made his way to the after-hours club in Dorchester owned by the Bennett brothers. There they found Varanis and Sidlowskis. Johnny approached Varanis and a brawl broke out with Johnny pistol-whipping Varanis. Sidlowskis jumped in to help his friend, only to find himself being attacked by Garraway. He was an associate of Johnny Monterano and would go on to be indicted for both murders the following year. He was found guilty of killing Sidlowskis in February of 68 and sentenced to life in prison. But Garraway was found innocent of murdering Tony Varanis in May of 69. While he was in Walpole, Garraway and Joe Barboza became cellmates. Garraway would later go on to provide statements about Joe Barboza's admissions in the Teddy Deegan murder and the murder of Clay Wilson that Barboza had committed in California. There will be more Garraway stories in future episodes since he was also tied up with the Bennett brothers. By the way, have I mentioned that Johnny Monterano is a liar? Well, maybe not in this episode, but yes, more than once. Well, I hope Johnny isn't listening. I don't need any spiteful geriatric hitmen holding a grudge. <laughs> I doubt any of these guys could give a shit what two broads have to say about them. Indulge me for a moment. Let me share an interesting side story. On the same day that Varanis and Sidlowskis were killed, Floyd V. Wilkins was found floating in the Plum River in Revere with a 25 caliber bullet wound to his head. He was a wealthy industrialist from New Jersey who had been missing for three months when his body was found. He checked into the staff ninth after a trip to County yeah, Court, Maine the previous day and had dinner at the Union Oyster House. It appears that he returned to his hotel room after dinner as his overcoat was in the room and he spoke to his wife by phone shortly after 8 p.m. The bed was never slept in and he was found only in his shirt, pants, and underwear. At that time, Ronnie Cassesso had been robbing hotel rooms of prominent out-of-town guests. What are the odds that it was Ronnie who killed Wilkins? 
I'd say very high. The only thing I could find odd in his background was a vehicular homicide case in 1937. Wilkins was 23 and driving a truck for his family's business. He crashed into a 39-year-old man who succumbed to his injuries. I doubt it was revenge nearly three decades later. I'd lean more towards a burglary gone wrong. He probably caught them in the act. Speaking of odd crimes, we need to cover the murder of Charles Van Maxey in Florida. When we do the Bennett Brothers murders, we should include that story, since the lover of Von Maxey's wife was a gangster wrapped up with Walter Bennett. And the real hitter was a cousin of Billy Aggie, so definitely worth telling that tale. Okay, let's move on to the next victim, Wilford Capalbo. Capalbo was a bartender who was shot three times while driving on Boylston Street in Worcester on May 11th. His car was discovered rammed into a telephone pole. Capalbo was still alive when the police and the paramedics arrived. He told the officers that he had been shot but refused to give any other details. The surgeons were able to remove the three slugs, but Capalbo succumbed to his wounds later that day. Robert D. Glavin was arrested and sentenced to life in prison for Capalbo's murder. If you listen to our series on Teddy Deegan, Glavin's name might sound familiar. He was the inmate that Ronnie Cassesso, Ralphie Chong Lamatina, and Nikki Ventola were charged with pressuring into committing perjury by falsely confessing to the murder of Teddy. Glavin went on to escape from prison shortly after that incident. I searched everywhere to find something about Glavin's arrest, trial, or conviction. There wasn't one article mentioning it until the perjury case in 1968. I also tried searching. The really strange thing is that all of the articles in 68 say that Glavin was convicted of killing Capalbo on the same day Capalbo was killed. I assume the journalists back then came up empty-handed, or the government planted Glavin in some attempt to ensure a conviction of the men charged in Teddy's death. Well, I wouldn't put it past them, but we're never going to know the answer to that, I guess. The next victim was longtime McLaughlin gang member Connie Hughes, who worked as a laborer, longshoreman, and truck driver in addition to his criminal activities. Cornelius Hughes was born on July 13, 1929, to Stephen J. Hughes and Mary Guerin. Connie's father had a record dating back to the time he was 16 and would later die in prison in 1959. We'll include a little bit more about him later in this episode when we get into Stephen Jr.'s murder. Connie had a record himself going back to 1947 for auto theft. In September of 48, he and Georgie McLaughlin were arrested for assaulting two railroad workers with a blackjack and robbing them of $8 on the Boston Common. They admitted to the beating but denied the theft. The two longshoremen were held on $5,000 bail each. In October, Connie was sentenced to three to five years and Georgie got five years. While Connie was serving his time in Charlestown State Prison, so was his father, who was locked up for possession of a machine gun. In 1953, Connie was in trouble again, this time for shooting an MBTA bus driver named Alan Fiddler. He survived and later told the cops that it was a case of mistaken identity and he didn't know why he'd been shot or who had shot him. A month later, Connie was held for a grand jury on the charges of assault with a dangerous weapon with intent to kill in possession of a dangerous weapon. But in May, perjury charges were brought against Fiddler. According to the complaint, the two men had an argument and took the beef outside, where they continued arguing in a car. It was at this point that Connie assaulted Fiddler and shot him. The charges were dropped against Connie, and he was freed. But not for long. He was arrested in 1954 for armed robbery in Cambridge, and the following year for larceny in Chelsea, for which he was sentenced to four months in jail. Then Connie and good old Harold Hannon were arrested with 221 capsules of heroin in February of 56. That's probably how Dad got mixed up with the McLaughlins initially, since he was running heroin at that same time. 
Oh, probably. What's more interesting is that the heroin case disappeared and Connie was never arrested again until 1965. You have to figure Connie was paying for protection from someone on the BPD, maybe Eddie Walsh? Or someone else. They could have even been Detective Billy Stewart since back then Wimpy Bennett was still in the McLaughlin camp. Either way, Connie was more than likely paying off someone in law enforcement to look the other way. Although that may have kept him out of prison, it did little to keep him safe. On May 26, Connie was slain. At four in the morning, his car was sprayed with a total of 15 armor-piercing bullets by men in a vehicle driving alongside of him. Connie's vehicle crashed into a concrete barrier on the Chelsea Rivera line and burst into flames. FBI Special Agent Rico met with his now favorite informant, Stevie Flemmy, a few days later. Stevie, Stevie alleged that Connie had been lurking around Dearborn Square trying to kill him. According to Rico, Stevie did not admit to the murder, but commented that he had an excellent idea who committed the murder. Flemmy again complained to Rico about Larry Bayoni, claiming that Bayoni had given money to Connie's widow through Stevie Hughes. He told Rico that he planned to kill Bayoni when the time was right, but that his murder had to be pinned on somebody else. Another attempt had been made on Connie's life back in the middle of March, but the shooter missed Connie and instead seriously injured Connie's brother, Stevie, who had been staying at Connie's house in Malden. Connie went underground, hiding from the assassin, while Stevie Hughes was hospitalized with five bullet wounds to the stomach. Howie Carr claims that Connie was given up by Brian Halloran, the same Brian Halloran who would later be killed by Whitey Bulger in May of 1982. And Mikey Donahue lost his life alongside Halloran. That was the first murder of someone I knew and spent time with. Armand Caprioli was the first person in my life to get killed, but I was just a baby. Mikey was always around. He indulged me in silly knock-knock jokes and all of that fun stuff and would leave money in my dollhouse for me. Well, we'll definitely discuss their murders next season. The list of suspects in Connie's murder included Tommy DePrisco, who would find himself a victim of the gang war later that year. And, of course, Joe Barboza, who had just finished his six-month sentence in the House of Correction, was also a suspect. Now for another mystery. The same day that Connie Hughes was murdered, John Hurley, another Johnny Moderano associate, took a bullet in his thigh at Monroe's Tavern on Chelsea Street. Hurley supposedly got into an argument with an unnamed 27-year-old Dorchester man. The assailant left the bar only to return with a gun. After he shot Hurley, the man fled and Hurley got himself to the hospital. The shooter returned to the bar at about 8 p.m. where the cops were waiting. The mystery man tried to flee, but the cops caught him. The authorities never released his name, only saying that he was possibly the last person to see Connie Hughes alive. The Boston Globe also noted that he had been beaten by Johnny Moderano's gang just a few weeks earlier. He was scheduled to appear in court on charges, but nothing seems to have come of it. The story just seems to die, and I've been unable to find anything else, and it is driving me crazy. Yeah, and you're driving me crazy with it. The age fits Brian Halloran, but Brian was on the Moderano side. Considering it was a Dorchester guy, he had to have been an associate of Spike O'Toole's. We're going to have to scour through the 302s to see if Stevie Flemmy gave any information to Special Agent Rigo about who it might have been. You should do a FOIA request with the Boston Police Department, too. Maybe they still have the records, but you're probably out of luck. I know, but you know I hate unanswered questions. Tell me about it. Let's move on to the next victim. Rocco de Siglio was born in Rome on April 11th, 1939, and immigrated with his parents, Sebastiano and Conchetta, at the age of eight. He had great difficulty in school because of his lack of English. He had a record going back to 1957 when he and his teammates assaulted a Little League baseball coach. The coach was probably abusing the kids. 
Anything is possible, but considering the coach wasn't robbed, it's more than likely. In 1961, Rocco found himself the victim instead of the perpetrator. Rocco and his friend, Charles Fremont, had just left the Newton Corner branch of the Newton Waltham Bank, where Charles had collected the $1,200 payroll that was to be distributed by his employer, Freed's Department Store. A man hopped in the backseat of their car before they could pull away and force them to drive to Brighton. Rocco was hit in the back of the head before his abductor fled. Well, you know, cynical me thinks they staged that. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past Rocco, but it was the second time the store's payroll had been jacked in three years. Later that year, he was arrested in Watertown, charged with an attempted B&E in possession of burglary tools. Instead of jail time, he was given six years probation. Then in 62, he was arrested in Waltham and charged with larceny under false pretenses, but the charges were dropped. That fall, he faced charges in Newton for gambling in a public place. In 1963, he was charged with larceny and burglary, but once again received probation, and this time a five-year suspended sentence. I don't understand. He was already on probation. (laughs) I don't understand our justice system. It's another one of those stories, though, where he would have been better off if he went to prison. Rocco stayed out of the news, but obviously not out of trouble, until June 16, 1966, when his body was found in a wooded area in Topsfield, Mass., in his 1964 Thunderbird. He had been shot three times in the back of his head with a 45 caliber handgun. One bullet went straight through his head and passed through the windshield. At the time of his murder, Rocco was living in Newton with his wife and two-year-old child. Rocco was known for being natalie dressed and driving his flashy burgundy Thunderbird, but no one questioned how he could afford his lifestyle. He was employed as a construction worker by his brother-in-law, Joe Danucci, but that wasn't enough to fund his habits. According to Danucci, Rocco was wrapped up in horses, dogs, and dice games, which fits since the last place Rocco was seen was at the Wonderland Dog Track in Revere. Rocco was keeping company with some shady characters, including Joe Barboza. The night of Rocco's murder, the East Boston police received an anonymous call about his killing. The mystery caller was Barboza. Later at trial, Barboza would admit that he was indeed the person who called Officer Fawcett, who had Barboza and his crew under surveillance. But Barboza was hardly being a good Samaritan. He had an axe to grind against the local LCN so he concocted a story that led to the arrest of Jerry Angelo, Bernard Zena, Mario Lapori, and Richard DeVinson on August 6th of 1967. If you want to hear more about the trial, listen to episode 23. But in the end, Jerry and his co-defendants were acquitted and Rocco's murder remains unsolved. Well, technically that's true, but the clincher for me is that Barboza led led the police to Rocco's body, so I'd say it's almost certain that Barboza killed him, probably over a debt or a perceived slight. But his perjury was ignored by the government once again as they continued to use him as their star witness. Twelve days later, Joe Barboza and Chico Amico were arrested for stabbing Arthur Pearson at the Tiger's Tail. Pearson, a fugitive from justice from California, was found barely alive in his car not far from the ebb tide. Both Barboza and Amico were in possession of marijuana when they were picked up. Bail was set at $100,000. On August 4th, charges were also brought against Nikki Femia and Patrick Fabiano. Their victim, Arthur Pearson, was also being held on $100,000 bail, allegedly for his own protection. On September 23rd, Stephen Hughes, brother of Connie, along with Sammy Linden, were murdered. Their lives were taken by a hail of armor-piercing bullets fired from a rifle in a passing black sedan as they drove along Route 114 in Middleton at 2 a.m. in the afternoon. Several witnesses said they saw the black sedan with three men and a woman overtake the two men at the top of a hill and counted at least seven shots. 
Sammy Linden's car knocked down several concrete guard posts and plunged up a 10-foot embankment and into a swamp. Jimmy Fleming and Joe Barboza had been seeking permission from Raymond Patriarca to kill Sammy Linden as early as May of 1965, but Joe Lombardo intervened on Sammy's behalf. We've covered Sammy's background in detail in episode 32 about Frank Smith, so check that one out if you want to know more about Sammy. Stevie's record went back to 1946 for larceny of a motor vehicle and a similar charge of the following year for which he received a two-year suspended sentence. In April of 48, he and three others, including Billy Cameron, were arrested. Stevie for operating a motor vehicle after his license was revoked and possession of a 45 caliber handgun, and again, he received a suspended sentence. As we mentioned earlier, Stephen Hughes Sr. had a record dating back to the time he was 16. In August of 49, he and another man were arrested for possession of a machine gun. He was given two and a half to five years in state prison and sent to Charlestown to join his son Connie. The two men appealed the verdict, arguing that the weapon had no firing pin, which rendered it useless, but the sentence was upheld in Massachusetts Supreme Court in July the following year. On a Sunday morning in the middle of December 1956, Hughes Jr. and Sr. were spotted putting a safe that they had stolen from a donut shop in their car. The eyewitness reported the last three digits of the license plate to the police, who knew exactly who the culprits were. The judge called the father and son pair menaces to society and held them on $5,000 bail. In February 1957, Stevie Hughes and his father were acquitted of the charges of breaking and entering and larceny. Joseph Sachs was their attorney, of course. In July of 59, Francis Xavier Ayrn was found in a parked car in Roxbury. He had been shot in the head and side and stabbed repeatedly. He was still alive but placed on the danger list at City Hospital. Ayrn alleged that C.V. Hughes was his attacker and the authorities issued a warrant for Stevie's arrest. The rumor was that Ayrn knew something about the murder of Tommy Sullivan two years before and that was why Stevie tried to kill him. While Stevie was on the lam, Stephen Hughes Sr. passed away in prison. In June of 60, Stevie Hughes surrendered and pleaded guilty to the charges. He was immediately sentenced to five to seven years and sent to Walpole, but was back on the streets in 62 after being granted parole. A few days after Christmas in 1965, the two Hughes brothers were arrested on Route 1 in Saugus on shoplifting charges at 1.30 in the morning. I wonder what they were stealing. Stevie was released on $2,500 bail, and both their cases were continued until January 14th, another case of where they would have been better off staying in prison. Exactly. Stevie Flemmy later told Special Agent Rico that it was Sammy Linden's own fault for being present when Stevie Hughes was murdered and that he, quote, should have known better, unquote. Stevie Flemmy eventually copped to the murder of Stevie Hughes, but not Sammy Linden. Mafia encyclopedia extraordinaire Vinnie Teresa alleged that it was Joe Barboza and Chico Amico who killed Sammy Linden and Stevie Hughes, but that's impossible because both of them were still being held on bail for the Pearson murder attempt. And if Vinnie had bothered to read a newspaper, he would have known that. Well. <laughs> Barboza was freed after a bail reduction hearing three days after the Linden Hughes double homicide. Nikki Femia and Chico Amico were freed on bail the day after that. We'll talk about Chico at the end of this episode. The next victim was John W. Jackson, another person linked to Margaret Sylvester, the lover of Johnny and Jimmy Moderano's father and a waitress at his club, Luigi's. Jackson was murdered outside his Queensbury Street apartment in Boston on September 28, 1966. He had been a witness to Margaret Sylvester's murder, and it appeared before the Suffolk County grand jury in that case just before his murder. He was scheduled to testify for the prosecution in the Margaret Sylvester murder trial. 
Johnny's brother, Jimmy Motorano, would go on trial in December for being an accessory after the fact in Margaret's murder and assault and battery with a shoe. Uh, hey. <laughs> Jackson had worked as a bartender at various clubs in the South End, Back Bay, and Roxbury for most of his adult life. His record was for petty crimes, receiving stolen goods, unarmed robbery, drunkenness, promoting a lottery, and so on. He had never served any time. The medical examiner said that five rounds from what appeared to be a 32 caliber hit Jackson in the lower back and two more hit him in the head. A 12-gauge shotgun was found at a church near the scene of the murder. Johnny Maturano later admitted to killing Johnny Jackson to protect his brother, Jimmy. Oh, that monotone 60 Minutes interview of him. Quote, I waited for him to pull up his parking lot behind the house, shot him with a shotgun through the other side of the fence I was on, end quote. Conveniently, Johnny claimed that Tommy DePrisco, Tosh Bratzos, and Jimmy Kearns were accessories in Jackson's murder. Since they were all six feet deep, it's not like they could contradict his <laughs> statement. <laughs> Jimmy Kearns died in 2005 in Phoenix, Arizona. I want to quote a little of Monterano's testimony from the 2013 Whitey Bulger trial. Did he claim to look his victims in the eyes? Oh, please. Another 60 minutes line. Johnny was the, the drive-by shooting king. Or the back of the head king. Anyhow, read the testimony for us. Quote, he, Jackson, was sort of on the run. He was invading everybody. I guess he was in there testifying. So we knew when he was coming home one night and waited for him. Quote, had your brother been indicted by that time? I think he was indicted for accessory after the fact. Jimmy Moderano wasn't even facing a murder charge, and Johnny had already killed the other witness, Robert Palladino, back in November of 65. He claimed Palladino was his first murder victim. And in the end, Johnny only did 12 years for the 20 murders he copped to. We'll be covering more of those murders and Johnny's eventual downfall next season. Then on November 14th, Tommy DePresco and Arthur Tash Bratzos were killed. Their bodies were found in the backseat of their car, which was parked in a lot in South Boston the morning of November 15th, 1966. They were both beaten, stabbed, and shot while out shaking down people to raise money to bail Barboza out of jail. At the time of their slayings, Bratzos was out on bail for illegal weapons possession charges that he was facing along with his co-defendants, Joe Barboza, Nikki Femia, and Patrick Fabiano. Unlike Barboza and Femia, Bratzos had only been pinched for minor offenses, so he was released on $1,000 bail. Supposedly, Bratzos felt guilty because he left a gun that belonged to Tommy DePrisco in the glove box of the car they were arrested in. Oh, please. Like, there was the only weapon the cops found in the car? But Frankie Salemi said the cop planted the gun on Barboza. <laughs> Another liar. If you listen to episode 24 about Joe Barboza's early days, recall that we covered the murders of DePrisco and Bratzos after their ill-fated trip to the Nightlight Lounge. DePrisco was shot four times in the head at close range, and Bratzos was shot twice in the head. According to Vinnie Teresa, Larry Bioni, Phil Wagenheim, Ralphie Chong, and his brother Joe Black were the ones who took out DePrisco and Bratzos after refusing their demands for money. After their request was denied, DePrisco and Bratzos attempted to hold them up at gunpoint and demanded they empty their pockets. Not only were they killed, but their pockets were emptied of $12,000 that they had collected from their prior shakedowns that evening. There isn't a lot of information on their backgrounds, but I'll share what I found. Arthur Bratzos was born on April 11, 1930 to Greek immigrants Costas and Lamona Bratzos. He worked as a loan shark under Barboza's protection after buying out Guy Frizee's Shylock business. It's believed that Barboza trusted Tash because of his loyalty and kept him close because one of his brothers was a cop. 
Here's a twist for you. Arthur's brother, James, he had a record going back to the late 1940s for B&Es and breaking out of jail with a toothpick. In January of 1951, James broke into the Newton home of Max Kramer. While he was out on bail, he committed another burglary in Dorchester. Then at one in the morning on March 6, James was shot at outside of his apartment building by three men. James returned fire and claimed he hit one of the men. Larry Bioni turned up at the city hospital with a bullet in his calf. Red acid, red acid, also appeared at the hospital with a bullet wound. Red acid. <laughs> hey, you're working on your Boston accent. For our listeners who missed episode 33, I always heard the guy say red acid, and I didn't realize his name was Assad until I was 20-something. Anyhow, James also found himself charged with assault and battery with intent to murder, but cleared the charges two weeks later. The charges in the Dorchester holdup were dropped, and James after breaking into a grocery store on Harrison Ave. Grazis's bail was doubled, but on May 24th, the jury found him not guilty, and he was once again free to go. The judge was livid and chastised the jury for their verdict. In late June, James was back in court for the Dorchester B&E. This time, the jury returned a guilty verdict, and he received two and a half to three years in state prison. In November of 1952, the charges against Larry Bioni were dismissed. On February 20th, 1954, James was released from prison, but on April 14th, his mother reported him missing. A tip was called in that his body was at the bottom of Glen Echo Lake in Stoughton. It was also rumored that Larry took his body to his family's pig farm in Stoughton, where the pigs ate him. To this day, James is still listed as the missing person. Oh, you have to assume that was one of the reasons Flemmy Barboza, Bratis, and the rest of their crew had it in for Larry. Now, I've got a strange one for you. On Tommy DePrisco's death record, it says that he was born on October 12, 1942, in Roslindale to Ralph Raphael DePrisco and Elizabeth Kearns. Ralph died five months before Tommy was born. His mother would have been 47 years old when she had Tommy. To add to that, Ralph and Elizabeth were married in 1917, but didn't have their first child until 1942. And to top it off, there's no birth record for Tommy. And in the 1940 census, she was living alone in a rooming house. Who knows where Tommy came from? We'll have to do some snooping when we have some free time. As for Tommy's record, he was running scams on cashiers. He'd hand a $10 bill and say for a $3 purchase that insisted he gave them a $20 bill. Allegedly, Tommy had problems collecting payments from Tony Varanis. Although Tommy was tough, he wasn't the brightest bulb on the tree. Tommy's run-in with Varanis was another reason that was floated around for why Johnny Moderano killed him. Supposedly, Varanis bragged to Moderano that he had kicked a Prisco out of a bar in South Boston. And before you say anything, no, I don't <laughs> buy that story. Good. When Barboza found out about what happened to DePrisco and Brazos, he lost it. He got word to Chico Amigo and ordered him to take out Phil Wagenheim. But the LCN found out about the plan and Chico's death warrant was signed. While the wise guys were planning to take out Amico, Wimpy Bennett was cooking up his own scheme and privately urging Amico to kill Larry Bioni. Like Barboza and Brazos, Wimpy hated Bioni and was quite vocal about it, so his suggestion to take Bioni out didn't come as a surprise. Man, Wimpy was a duplicitous creep. Yeah. Going to Raymond and Jerry, telling them one story, and then plotting to take out one of their guys. Ralphie Chong Lamatina would plead guilty to being an accessory after the fact in the murders of Brazos and DePrisco in February of 67 and sentenced to 10 to 14 years in state prison. But Ralphie would not tell the cops what they really wanted to know who the trigger man had been. 
The ADA Pino complained bitterly, quote, La Matina has taken the easiest way out of this thing by coming and pleading guilty and then walking out. That way the case is closed, unquote. During the court hearing, Detective Frank Walsh of the BPD testified that Bratzos had formed had phoned Chico Amico from the payphone at the nightlight shortly before he was killed. It was also later revealed that the morning their bodies were found, Wimpy Bennett had been ringing up Detective Billy Stewart and feeding him all the gossip he had heard about the killings. Guess that's why Wimpy vanished in three pounds of lie in a garbage bag. All right, back to Amico. On December 7th, 1966, 25-year-old Joseph Chico Amico was shot and killed in his car outside of Alfonso's Broken Hearts Club. The driver of the car was Jimmy Kearns. Less than an hour earlier, they had been at the El Morocco Club, uh, the El Morocco, a club owned by Larry Bioni. Supposedly, they were looking for Larry in order to kill him. Instead, they found one of Larry's cousins, who Chico proceeded to slap across the face, telling him this is for Larry. But another witness at the time claimed that Chico was begging, please straighten it out. This is my life. You've got to straighten it out. And it was Kearns who punched another man at the bar in the eye. Someone at the El Morocco called the cops and the two men left, with Chico saying, we're leaving, we don't want any trouble. As they were leaving the El Morocco, they mentioned that they were heading to Alfonso's. The moment they left, a call was placed to Alfonso's, giving them a heads up. Nobody at Alfonso's gave them any trouble. The two men had a drink and went to leave. As they stepped out of the door, Guy Frizee gave a signal by tapping on the window. The two men got into their rented 1967 green sedan, and as they pulled away, Joseph J.R. Russo opened fire with his favorite weapon, a carbine. He fired a perfect shot through the back of Amico's head, but instead of the bullet exiting the front of its, his skull, it pushed out his eyes so that they were dangling out of the sockets. Oof. Second shot entered Kern's back, but he managed to keep driving until he careened over an embankment and the car landed in a field, crashing into a utility pole. Forensics said a total of six rounds hit the vehicle. Casings from the 30 caliber semi-automatic were found along the route that the man had taken on Squires Road. The press at the time noted the similarities between the murder of Chico and the murders of Stevie and Connie Hughes earlier in the year. But if that's true, it makes me question our assumption that Johnny and Monterano and Stevie Fleming killed the Hughes brothers. The two men never have, have never claimed to kill, have killed T Connie, and Stevie Fleming only admitted to killing Stevie Hughes much later, but maybe that was just another lie of Stevie Fleming's. Raymond Patriarca probably decided that the Hughes were too unpredictable and needed to be removed and sent J.R. Russo to do the job. Amazingly, Kern survived with only cuts from the shattered glass from the back window of the car and an injured foot from when he hit the utility pole. But he'd soon find himself behind bars as an accessory after the fact in Amico's murder. Kearns went on the lam in March of 67, but was arrested in Los Angeles in June and extradited back to Massachusetts. There will be more to come about Kearns' criminal career in this season and the next. The year before, in May of 65, Amico reportedly tried car with a blown out rear window as he led the would-be assassins on a high-speed chase through the streets of Chelsea. When news of the failed attempt reached Barboza, he decided to take matters into his own hands. While he laid in wait in the alley behind Connie's house, Connie himself approached Barboza and led him on a wild chase along with his brother Stevie, who Barboza didn't realize was also in the car. Stevie opened fire, blasting out the windshield of Barboza's vehicle. Barboza was unscathed, and the Hughes brothers vanished into the night, leaving Barboza more pissed off than ever. May 1965 was a busy month mm -hmm. in the gang. 
The reason Barboza had it in for the Hughes brothers was that he believed that it was them who had tried to kill Jimmy Flemmy earlier that month. Supposedly, Wimpy Bennett tried to convince Barboza that Connie had an airtight alibi for the night of Jimmy's shooting, but he didn't give such promises about Stevie. In fact, according to Wimpy, Stevie Hughes was the hitter. As we've recounted in previous episodes, Jimmy Flemmy included Spike O'Toole and Punchy McLaughlin in his version of events to H. Paul Rico. Then in March of 66, it was Wimpy Bennett who tried to kill Stevie and Connie Hughes outside of Connie's home in Malden, resulting in Stevie having to have his spleen removed. As we mentioned earlier, Connie was forced to flee and leaves Stevie there waiting for help. When asked by the police about the shooting later, Connie said Stevie was shot, period. In 1980, Stephen Hughes' son, Stephen III, was shot to death in his driveway while unloading groceries from his car. Eighteen years later, John Burke of Charlestown confessed to the murder as part of a plea agreement. Burke claimed he killed Hughes in self-defense and stated that the bank robber Hughes was planning to kill him. It's sad that three generations follow the same path. No shortage of twists and turns in this story or connections between the victims of the gang war in 1966, including the fact that Stevie Hughes' wife, Eleanor, and Jimmy Kearns were first cousins. That is so Boston. Next week, we're going to be profiling the men of the nightlight and some of the other men in Jerry Angelo's circle. Let's include Dominic Chiambelli, a.k.a. Red Hogan. Oh, you've been dying to tell Red Hogan's story. Now's my chance. Hope you join us again next week. As always, thanks for listening. I'll spare you my usual plea for subscribers, likes, shares, and donations. Bye. Bye. Double Deal. True stories of criminals, crimes, and lies.